The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you from 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Well, this is, um, I think, about our 25th annual Reformation lecture. Been doing this for a long time. And we normally pick, um, like, inspiring topics inspiring people, there is nothing inspiring in what we're going to talk about tonight. But it is one of the untold stories of the Reformation. And in fact, if you were to try to find literature on it, you would find that most of it is in Dutch and German and very, very little of it is in English. And so it is really, for that reason, uh, predominantly unknown to us. So we have a view of the Reformation that basically goes like this. October 31st, 1517, Luther takes 95 theses, goes, nails them to the church door at Wittenberg, and then bang, there is this Reformation that sweeps through Europe, and it's absolutely awesome. And I want to say that, uh, first of all, history never works like that. Um, And the Reformation was not nearly that nice and neat. In fact, even if you were to read the 95 Theses, you would realize that there were things that Luther was saying in those 95 Theses that you have no idea why he's talking like that. Seriously. So, there are periods of Reformation history that are, let's just say, not nearly as wonderful as that dramatic day in October of 1517. So would you believe that at the time of the Reformation, there was a Marxist revolution before there was Karl Marx? Would you believe that there was an event during the time of the Reformation that would make Jim Jones and Jonestown look like a minor event. There was an event that happened from 1534 to 1535 that would make David Koresh and the Davidian compound and their destruction by ATF look like amateur hour. What if I told you there was a major chapter in Reformation history that will make you cringe and maybe even blush tonight? So tonight's Reformation lecture is going to be 
on what we could call um, one of the darker sides of the Reformation. But there are, in fact, a number of lessons for us to learn from this dark chapter. And so we're calling uh, tonight's lecture the Radical Apocalyptic Reformation, and you'll see why shortly. So you have the Radical Reformation, all right? And so, Roger, you do the next slide, please. In 2001, I taught on the Radical Reformers, all right, which was a few years ago. And we commonly call them Anabaptists, right? That's what we commonly call them. But you have to understand the word Anabaptist is the word that's used by the opposition. Okay? The Anabaptists never called themselves Anabaptists. They called themselves the Brethren. They called themselves Christians. They called themselves the Community of Christ. They called themselves anything but Anabaptist. And one of the reasons is, is because they thought what they were doing was not rebaptizing. Anna, Greek term, Anabaptist is to rebaptize. They didn't think they were rebaptizing anybody. They thought they were just baptizing people for the first time. Because infant baptism is not baptism. But one of the most important things about this movement is that it's simply not one movement. Okay? You cannot talk about the Anabaptist movement as if it were just sort of one stream of, of, of Reformation thought. There are going to be uh, a, a number of different groups that we would call Anabaptist. And they are, in fact, linked together by believers' baptism. But in a sense, that's that's the only common denominator for many of them. Okay? So it would be like saying, um, if, um, if you believed in, um, in, in premillennialism and say, and you said, okay, well, these guys were premillennialists and Jehovah's Witnesses were premillennialists. And you'd say, well, hold on a second. Just because we both hold to that doesn't mean we're related. And that would be the case with many of the Anabaptists. Now, I'm not going to continually call them the radical reformers, but that's what, in fact, they were. And so we make a distinction between the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers. Okay? The ma- magisterial reformers would basically be everybody that wasn't an Anabaptist. Okay? And what made them magisterial was they believed in a state church. And so magisterial refers to the civil magistrate and the role of the magistrate in the affairs of the church. And so in varying degrees, whether it was, whether it was Zwingli or whether it was Luther or whether it was Calvin or whether it was Bollinger, didn't make any difference. All of them believed that the power of the ma- uh, civil magistrate should be used by the church. In other words, the civil magistrate, that is judges and elected officials, had the responsibility to protect the purity of the doctrine of the church and to punish heretics or blasphemers, magisterial reformers, state church. The Anabaptists were radical in that they were, um, in, in a very real sense, they would have been seen as revolutionaries. They were seen as revolutionaries because 
they saw a separation between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And civil authorities had absolutely no role, let alone any authority, in the church. And in fact, the church would not only um, not allow the magistrate to be involved in the affairs of the church, but the church was not to rely on the power of the sword. That was the magistrate's role, power of the sword. They had a function, but it was completely separate from the church. So as we think about these Anabaptists, there are three main streams, all right? And the first we could call theological radical reformers. And in in this sense, I think that it's probably truest to say the Anabaptist label probably fits them the best. These were early Swiss reformers. And so who's the, um, who's the earliest Swiss reformer from Zurich? Zwingli, right? So these guys are influenced heavily by Zwingli. And you had three of them. You had Felix Mance, Conrad Grable, and Michael Sattler. The, they were orthodox in their theology And they were Protestant except on the issue of infant baptism. These guys rejected infant baptism. And you might remember, we've done a lecture on Zwingli as well. These three had a huge influence on Zwingli and almost persuaded Zwingli of believer's baptism. But you have to remember, in late medieval Europe, Infant baptism was not just simply a point of theology. It was how you kept track of citizenship. It was how you kept track of taxation. And it was how you knew who was, um, who was uh, uh, eligible for military conscription, right? So to do away with infant baptism was a huge blow to the state, And so, these three men, orthodox in their theology, all died. Grable was exiled and died of the plague. Felix Mance was actually drowned by order of the city council of Zurich. And in fact, that was the favorite way to kill Anabaptists, often called their third baptism. Sattler was burned at the stake, and this form of Anabaptism would actually live on in uh, people like Menno Simons, founder of the Mennonites, and, um, and other Amish communities, and so forth. So there are six, basically six common marks to this uh, movement. And the first would be called primitive, uh, primitivism or restorationism. The idea is, is that from their perspective, the church went downhill as soon as the last apostle died. And their movement is a return to the early church or a restoration of the apostolic church. And what I want to say is that, that most all restoration movements are, uh, are strange. Okay? The Reformation, in a sense, was not a restoration movement. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you want. It really wasn't. 
But this was a restoration movement. Go back to the times of the apostles and so forth. The second mark was that the church is a free society of baptized believers. So you're not born into the church. So if you're born in certain parts of Germany, you are Lutheran by virtue of where you're born, right? And so this is, by the way, this is how it is all throughout Europe. The Anabaptists, this, this stream, the church is a free society of baptized believers, and so it was a rejection of both infant baptism and then the idea of a sacral society, that is a joint membership in the state and the church. State and church have nothing to do with each other. Third, the church should be holy. It should be a pure church, a separate church from the world. And so they formed separatist communities. The idea was is that you don't share culture with the world. And as a result, people who were in those communities that didn't live according to the standards established by those communities were shunned. Fourth, Mark, was pacifism. Now, this is going to be important in terms of our our lecture tonight. So, pacifism. So, your Anabaptists um, believed that that war is absolutely evil. A Christian cannot serve as a soldier or in public office, and they were completely uh, opposed to all violence. No loyalty to the state. None. Your loyalty is to Christ. Number five, anti-tradition. In most of these uh, Anabaptist streams, there was rejection of music, rejection of all Christian tradition. By the way, it's going to be this this mark that actually will give birth to some Anabaptists who would be rationalists and then end up becoming anti-Trinitarian. All right? And then they were anti-hierarchy. Anti-clerical, anti-church constitution, anti-bylaws. There was an emphasis on the equality of all believers, no paid clergy, and uh, the church was, was truly an egalitarian society, all right? So that is the theological radical reformers, all right? But there's another group, and that would be the cultural radical reformers, Now, the cultural radical reformers have a leader by the name of Thomas Munzer. Munzer is, (laughs) he's a Marxist and a socialist, all right? And what he meant by that was that ownership of private property was from the devil, okay? Ownership did nothing but promote greed. So what needed to happen is that Um, these communities needed to have all things in common, all right? And so in that sense, um, Thomas Munzer was an early communist, and and so it is Munzer who actually ends up being sort of an instigator to what would be known as the Peasants' Revolt, 1524 to 1526. So you have to to kind of appreciate this. In, In Europe at this time, you have lords and you have peasants, okay? You, you truly have a caste society. There's no such thing as the middle class, none, all right? You have feudal lords 
and other wealthy people that own all the land. And then you have the peasants who live on that land and work for the feudal lords. And so Luther comes along and he starts preaching things like the freedom of the Christian. You're no man's slave. He's preaching things like the priesthood of all believers. All believers stand on equal footing. And so so Munzer and others began to teach, in a sense, the idea that, that the feudal lords did not have a right to the property that they had and that the peasants actually had rights to actually have more. Now, I don't know if this, any of this sounds familiar to you. All right? Okay, so history just gets rerun over and over and over again. And so what happens is that Munzer and others are responsible for promoting what we would today just simply call a class struggle. And the the underlying, so Munzer was a prophet. He was one of the Zwickau prophets. And um, Luther, of course, who despised everything Anabaptist hated Thomas Munzer, and he says the problem with that heretic is that he thinks he swallowed the Holy Ghost, feathers and all. So, so Munzer is a prophet, and he teaches that there needs to be social unrest in order to usher in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. Okay? And so what happens is the peasants rise up, and there is a revolt. Now, what do you think Luther's position is on the peasants' revolt? He's telling the princes, kill them all. All right? He's not, he's not telling the princes, hey, go easy on these guys. They're just applying. No, Luther sees the peasants' revolt as a threat to the Reformation. Because if, if revolt is what's going to be happening as a result of the Reformation, the Reformation's going to die. Okay? And so Luther tells the princes, wipe them out. And over a two-year period, 100,000 German peasants were massacred. Okay? Munzer was also a, a, a member of what were known as the Zwickau Prophets. And the Zwickau prophets believed not only were they special prophets who received direct divine revelation from God, but that all believers receive revelation from God through the inner word. For Munzer, this is a dead letter. What matters is what God says in here. All right? So that's the cultural radical reformers. Now we get to the apocalyptic Dutch Reformation. Okay? Now, there's a few figures that actually all lead into this, uh, the, the topic for tonight. The first is uh, just a very humble Dutch layman by the name of Melchior Hoffman. And he comes under um, Luther's influence and becomes a Lutheran. And he's a very effective preacher. He's going around in the lowlands preaching. And um, at some point, Hoffman goes from being a Lutheran to being an Anabaptist. Now, I just want to say that no matter where you were 
in Europe. Didn't matter whether it was a Catholic country, a Lutheran country, or a Reformed country. If you were an Anabaptist, you had a short lifespan. Remember, magisterial reformers. Use of the civil magistrate to do what? To punish heretics. And so it was a dangerous thing to be an Anabaptist. And so Melchior Hoffman goes around and he, he starts, and it's subtle. He doesn't just stand up one day and say, hey, I'm a part of the Radical Reformation. He starts preaching things like infant baptism is an error. By the way, that was one of the telltale signs that you had come under Anabaptist influence. And so, um, Oxford Encyclopedia of the Reformation says, Hoffman exhibited virtually all the qualities of a radical except he refused to advocate outright rebellion. Okay? So, he believes, he comes to believe that he is a prophet. And his, his, his special prophetic gift is that he has now spiritual insight into the letter of the word. So, so he can see stuff that you don't see. And then he starts to become convinced that he's not only a prophet, but that he is also Elijah. Now, if you think you're Elijah... You've got some issues. Now, Melchior Hoffman is a a pious man. He's a sincere man. But now he believes that God has given him the special gift to do what? To actually calculate when the second coming and judgment are going to happen. And so he comes up with 1533 and Jesus is going to return in Strasbourg. (laughs) Strasbourg will become the new Jerusalem after the judgment. Notice they always pick the big cities that they're around. Nobody ever says, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be in Tonopah. (laughs) Unless, of course, you live in Tonopah. So Hoffman is preaching, and by the way, so he's going around, he's preaching, the end is coming, it's coming in 1533, Um, uh, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom in Strasbourg, thousand year reign in Strasbourg, and uh, he's going to come and judge all the unbelievers, and what Melchor uh, Hoffman did is he said, there is a terrible violence that's coming, although we're never going to be part of it, okay? Violence is coming, but I'm anti-violence, all right? Now, of course, he goes around preaching this, and this is a threat, okay? It's a threat to, um, to, to princes of city-states. I mean, you're getting people worked up. You're getting people with this uh, apocalyptic fervor. And so, of course, Melchior Hoffman is arrested, and he is put in a cage, that hangs from a church tower, okay? Now, Hoffman has followers, affectionately called Melchiorites, okay? And there's one of them 
by the name of Jan Matthijs. All right, and you can see up there, Jan Matthijs or um, John Matthias. All right, that would be the anglicized pronunciation. And he succeeds Melchior. And his message is, Overall, he was, he, uh, Melchior was, 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 was pretty much right. Got the wrong year. Okay. 1534, not 33. All right. He was off. And then, and he got the city wrong. It's not going to be Strasbourg. It's going to be Munzer. Okay. That's where Jesus is going to come back and establish his kingdom for a thousand years. By the way, he got one other thing wrong. Jan Matthijs believed that Hoffman's emphasis on nonviolence was wrong. He got the year wrong, he got the city wrong, and he was wrong about not using violence to accomplish your end. That brings us to the Munzer Rebellion. So we have a map up here. And this is Europe in the mid-1600s. So we're about 100 years off. But you'll notice right there, Westphalia. Is that good enough, Heiko? It's okay. All right. And so... That's the region, okay? I don't know if they call it region, but and then there's Munster. So it's not far from Amsterdam, but notice it's in the northern part of Germany. And the interesting thing about Munster up until 1533 was that it was one of the rare cities in Europe where you had Catholics and Protestants that lived together. And you had Catholics and Protestants that both served on the city council together. And you had Catholic and Protestant merchants and bakers and tailors and blacksmiths. And they all got along fine and all were in the same guilds. And, and so Munster ends up being sort of a really sort of a, a model city in terms of people getting along. Well, Melchior Hoffman after he's arrested, his disciple, Jan Matthias, decides to go to Munster. Why? Well, because that's where the kingdom of God is going to come. Now, by the time he gets to Munster, he finds out that there is this, this guy named Bernard Rothman. Now, Bernard Rothman, there's going to be two Jans and two Bernards, okay? And Bernard Rothman was interesting because he was a Roman Catholic. He was very radical and his family was concerned about him. So they gave him a sum of money to go down to get theological training at a Roman Catholic institution. And instead of doing that, he actually takes the money and goes elsewhere. He then becomes a Lutheran. But just like Hoffman, then becomes an Anabaptist. He comes to Munster in 1532, and he, and he comes to this peaceful city, 
And what Bernard Rothman starts doing is he starts preaching the principles of of the Anabaptists. And one of those things was you have to actually um, destroy idols. So Rothman actually leads a group of sympathetic, not yet completely Anabaptist, but sympathetic uh, followers, and they go on a rampage going from church to church doing what? Destroying the art, busting up the, uh, the statues, and this is the beginning of a serious problem. So at that time, the guy that's in charge of Munzer is a prince bishop. Okay? Bishops during this time in the Catholic Church, being a bishop has no religious or ecclesiastical function whatsoever. You buy the position if you are the prince of, an air, of, of a region. So the prince of, of Munzer is the prince bishop, right? So he's got connection to the Catholic Church, but he also is in league with the other princes. And so the prince bishop of Munzer, who is himself a feudal lord, that is, he owns lots of property, he wants to expel Rothman, right? This guy's a troublemaker. He's vandalizing churches. He's leading people to do the same thing. But on the city council, there is another Bernard, Bernard Nipperdoling. Nipperdoling. All right. Um, so put up the next slide there, Raj. This is, this is a, 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 an ancient painting of, of Munzer. Munzer just means monastery. You can see the, the Latinized. The city itself is three miles in circumference. Has massive, thick, city walls. By the way, the size and the, the structural defense is going to have a major impact in just a couple short years. So Bernard Nipperdoling supports Rothman and says, I don't think we should expel this guy. I think he actually has good stuff that we should be listening to. And the thing about, about Rothman is that he was a very good rhetorician, very good orator, and he was the guy who could write pamphlets. You have to understand, printing press is new. This is the way you did your blog in those days, right? Okay, you went, and so guess what Bernard Nipperdaling has in his basement? A printing press, <laughs> So Rothman is cranking out his pamphlets that are persuading and influencing not just people in Munzer, but people all over Germany. Now, Nipperdoling begins to have very strong Anabaptist sympathies, and he starts having these secret meetings in his home, all right? Um, and the secret meetings, think about um, like Samuel Adams and... Um, you know, our early founding fathers, right, as they're meeting in secret trying to figure out how to overthrow the British, right? And so here's, here's uh, Nopper Dalling, and um, he's got these meetings, and it's, these meetings are how can we actually support and promote Rothman, okay? 
Nipper Dalling is absolutely convinced he's a prophet. And what can we do to help promote the Anabaptist movement? So the two Bernards end up leading a mob on a, on a fanatic book-burning crusade and statue and art purge. And so Nipper Dalling actually challenges the, the prince bishop. And he actually, he sways this, he had been, um, he'd been a part of that community for a very long time. He was an incredibly respectable guy, right? And he had served on the city council. People loved him. And so what he starts to do is he starts to exercise that influence and he persuades the city council to actually make law that all Catholic mass and Catholic practices will cease. And what does the city council do? They are swayed by Nipper Dolan. No more mass. No more practice of the Catholic faith. In fact, Rothman at one point goes out and has uh, an ecstatic experience in front of a convent and he is he is screaming at the nuns that they need to come out from the convent, get married, and have babies because the judgment of God is going to come, and if you still are a nun in this convent, you're going to be toast. Okay? And so, after the bishop um, didn't like <laughs> that decision, he was formally a Roman Catholic, but had Lutheran leanings, all right, he actually starts to uh, enforce a blockade against the city. So he's outside the city. He's not even there. And he starts to enforce a blockade to punish the city. And the city council then wavers, and they say, okay, we give. We're going to forbid Rothman from preaching. When the council gives in to the prince bishop, Rothman begins a pamphlet printing blitzkrieg, sending out pamphlets all throughout Germany, announcing that Munzer is going to open its gates and is going to share all of its property and belongings with all who will come to the city. Well, what happens? Thousands, thousands flood in to Munzer, hoping for now their share of the pie. Munzer is actually a very profitable city. It's a very wealthy city. And so now, all of a sudden, you've got all the 99 percenters looking at Munzer going, hey, they're the one percenters, and they're going to start sharing. And so guess what happens? You have thousands flooding in. And so under the two Bernards, the city now holds new elections. <laughs> I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but you open up the gates, you let like thousands and thousands of people in, then you have a new election. And lo and behold, under the leadership of the two Bernards and the influx of thousands hoping to get their share of the pie, the council is now rid of all Catholics and all moderate Lutherans and is now only manned by people who were 
either Anabaptist already or who said, you know what, the next baptism service, I'm there. That's how you change an election. So in 1533, with all the poor people flooding in and the new sympathetic council, preachers and prophets also start to flood into Munster. And so they start having large-scale baptisms in public. Right? By the way, this is one of the few cities where this is even happening. If you're an Anabaptist and you're going to be baptized in the river, you're going to do it with just a few of your Anabaptist friends. You're not going to have 1,500 people baptized over a two-month period out in public doing it every single day. And yet in Munster, that's exactly what was happening. And so they were celebrating uh, the, the new elections, With, of course, um, drunken parties in the streets. So by this time, 1533, one-third of the Munster population had been baptized. And we're now waiting for the apocalypse. Which they thought was going to happen, how? By the bishop waging war against Munster. So if you think the apocalypse is going to happen, Jesus is going to come back to Munster and he's going to establish his thousand-year reign in Munster and that's going to happen through some kind of violent conflagration and you know the bishop is really ticked at you. Guess what you don't care about? You don't care about making peace with the bishop. You want to tick him off all the more because at that point you get to expedite the eschaton. So Rothman and others are driving nuns out of the convent with the threat of judgment. They're telling the the nuns to go and get married. And the two Bernards begin organizing and collecting weapons and explosives. Now this starts a tension with the bishop, of course. And there is, for a period of time, sort of this back and forth anticipation of who's going to attack who. And so while, while the while the political tension between the city council and the prince bishop is going on, religious fanaticism inside the city walls starts to reach frenzied levels. Women and men begin throwing off their clothes, running naked through the streets, rolling in pig and cow dung, Shrieking, foaming at the mouth. And Bernard Rothman and Bernard Nipperdalling and the prophets are holding mock masses every day, having their own services filled with obscene hymns and sensual dancing. Then, in the midst of all of this, Jan Matthijs shows up. Remember the prophetic heir of Melchior Hoffman. He'd been a humble baker in Amsterdam, just making strudel and stuff, but now he was a mesmerizing prophet. And by the way, if you look him up and you see the pictures, none of the pictures do justice to the actual physical descriptions of him. Okay? 
He was in his 50s. He was a tall, thin man with a gigantic bald head and a long flowing beard, and he dressed in black. He looked like an Old Testament prophet. And on his arm was a beautiful woman, 20 years his junior, his wife, Devara, who dressed in gleaming white. Everywhere they went, she would walk slightly behind him, fingers on his arm, going around with him. Everywhere they went, they were adored by Anabaptists. Now, Matthias has um, a walkie-talkie approach of communication with God. Okay? And so Matthias would, be, would do things like this. He would be talking to, um, let's say, Nipper Doling or one of the city council members or maybe even addressing a, a, a large group of people. And he would say, and so, yes, Father? What God wants me to tell you right now Okay. Now, by the way, do you understand that if people believe that, once God has spoken, who can resist? Let alone refute. If he's the prophet and God's whispering in his ear and he turns around and says, hold on a second, you just said that you think you should charge this much for that? God just told me you got to charge this much for that. Who's going to argue? So Matthias, after a few days in Munzer, he'd only been there less than a week, he actually gets up, has, has a word from God, and he says, the city council has to be changed and actually composed of all of those who are actually only the true faithful Anabaptists. And so new elections are held, and the Anabaptists celebrate that election with more drunken parties in the streets that at that point become violent. Priests are assaulted. People that had not submitted to baptism were assaulted. So Matthias begins to proclaim that Munzer is the new Zion. And only the baptized would be saved. All others needed to be expelled. And so the city is continuing to stockpile. They're stockpiling provisions. They're stockpiling arms. And although Matthias actually calls for the execution of all Catholics and all Lutherans. Nipper Dolin is about the only person that Matthias will listen to. And he says, you can't do that. You do that and all of Europe will come in and kill us. Let's just expel them instead. And so they were expelled. Hundreds and hundreds of men, women, and children expelled cruelly, driven out into the bitter winter cold, not allowed to take any of their belongings. And now 
with all of those people gone, many of whom actually died from exposure with their children. Now with them gone, now the Anabaptists who are in Monster actually now have access to everything that they left behind. And so what's interesting is that while, while Anabaptists are being burned or drowned all over Europe, in Munzer, they actually have control of the city. But the bishop obviously wants his city back. And so he's planning a siege. So in nearby towns, what, what the prince bishop decides to do is he ends up um, going uh, to the surrounding towns of Munzer, and he is actually he is actually killing, executing Anabaptists wherever he can find them. He wants to send a message, don't you dare think of coming to my town. And so then he realizes that this is going to be a big chore trying to root these people out of the city of Munzer. And so he borrows two cannons from Philip of Hesse. And the two cannons are called the devil and the devil's mother. So he begins recruiting mercenaries. 8,000 mercenaries respond. So inside the walls of Munzer, city, as I said, three miles in circumference, you now have about 9,000 Anabaptists that are ready for the apocalypse. So under the leadership of Rothman, Nipperdaling, and most of all, Yamatais, the Anabaptists actually were now engaging in guerrilla warfare. You have a three-mile city wall. You can sneak out in a lot of places. And so they would send out small bands of Anabaptists who would sneak out at night and actually would, would, would go and find little uh, posts of, of the bishop's soldiers, cut their throats, burn whatever they could burn, and then sneak back into the city. They were so serious about this war that as more and more people snuck into the city, believing it to be the new Jerusalem, it only, it only fueled the, um, the, the fervor. So that, what did women do? Women actually spent their day tending to boiling cauldrons of pitch and um, making wreaths, dipping it in pitch so that when the soldiers would come up the ladders on the wall, they'd set them on fire and throw them around the necks of the soldiers coming up the ladders. So Jan Matthijs issued an order that all books needed to be burned except the Bible. That included Luther's works, anybody else. And furthermore, everything which was against the principle of love, according to Matthijs, was now abolished. Ownership of anything, he argued, was clearly against the principle of love. Private ownership was satanic. And so those who tried to challenge Matthias were actually just killed. There was a small group of, of well-respected businessmen in Munzer who believed that Matthias was destroying their city. They spoke out in opposition. They not only are arrested, but they are hacked to death in the middle of the street. One of them, a well-respected blacksmith, as, as he is standing up to Matthijs, Nipperdaling, who is really not very uh, adept at killing people, he's a, he's a merchant, takes a broad axe, hits the 
the strong, bulky blacksmith right in the middle of the back. He falls down. He doesn't die. So then he takes a pistol, which of course would have been an old flintlock, holds it up to his head, shoots him in the head, and he doesn't die. He lingers for eight days. But once the bloodletting had started, it was going to be, it, was, it would become worse and worse and worse. And so the bloodletting had started, violence and tyranny had now taken over the city of Munzer. And let me just remind you, this happens in the span of 1534 to 1535. Rothman actually sends out more pamphlets inviting people to come to Zion. And so they're, they're expecting a few hundred. 15,000 people respond. They form pilgrimages to actually start to head the moon, sir. Well, guess what? All 15,000 of them are killed before they ever get to moon, sir. Guess what the other princes are not going to allow? So as those made their, their way to Munzer, they were cut down. And so, as Prince Bishop began to get the upper hand in the siege, Jan Matthijs had a vision at a wedding party. So this is, there are eyewitnesses that write these things down. So here he is at a wedding party. He becomes very somber, and then all of a sudden, his face falls free, uh, just free falls on the table. Thud. And with a noggin that big, it made quite the noise. And people thought he was dead. And so they sat there. And so the whole party stops. And, and, and he's just there, just still. And then he rises up and he says, the father has spoken. Of course, everybody wants to know what the father has said. The father has told me that I'm to go out and like David, fight single-handedly the bishop's army. And so he takes about a dozen men with him and 500 soldiers, the prince bishop, descend upon them and slaughter them in a matter of minutes. They pay special attention to Jan Matthijs. And they hack him up in view of the city walls of Munzer into little pieces. They take his head and stick it on a pike outside of the city gates. And on the doors of the city wall, they nail, let's just say, use your imagination. So at this point, so you got this movement. So at this point, the prophet dies, right? So what happens to the branch Davidians when David Koresh dies? What happens, I mean, when when the prophet dies, the movement dies, right? That's just the way that it it usually goes. But, But here was the weird thing, is it didn't happen that way. It went from weird to weirder. And so... Everybody thought the movement was, would die for sure. But then something unusual happens. A young tailor who was very good looking, who had studied acting, Jan von Leiden, emerges. He's like 24 years old. He's like strikingly good looking. I mean, he's like, he's like, like Charlie Jarrett good looking. 
or Brad Pitt or something like that. And um, now he's married and has a daughter, but he comes and he moves in with the Nipperdolings and marries then Bernard Nipperdoling's oldest daughter. So when Matthias is killed, Jan Leiden actually steps in. Now everybody thinks that Jan Matthias is going to be raised from the dead on the third day. So on the third day, the entire town is summoned to the largest church in the city. And as they stand there waiting, some of them are probably waiting for Jan Matthijs to appear. And instead, Jan von Leiden actually comes on a second story balcony with candlelight behind him. And he steps forward in this, in this uber mystical type scene. And everybody just falls absolutely silent. And then he employs his acting skills. There they are waiting with bated breath and with unbelievable oratorical power. He says to everybody, it was the will of God that Jan Matthijs die. All the oxygen is sucked out of Munzer. Now, young Jan Leiden says, God's revealed to me that Matthias had to die because he had become arrogant. And instead of fasting and praying, he decided that he would go forth and be the hero and God killed him. He also told the crowd that God revealed to him that when Matthias died, he should marry his widow, Devara. Nipperdoling, who's on the second floor balcony with him, steps forward and says, everything that the prophet says is true. He told me all of this verbatim nine days ago. Unbelievable. Nipperdoling affirms that this happened exactly as Leiden says. Leiden then, in this charismatic, frenzied, visionary display, begins to cry out, Father, give us your love. Father, give us your love. Father, give us your love. And people begin to strip off their clothes and dance in the streets. Von Leiden also then told the city council that they were no longer needed. He, as the prophet, actually was going to appoint 12 apostles to rule the city. And strangely enough, Nipper Doling was not one of the 12. Jan gave him the distinguished role of being the new executioner. All the while, all this is happening inside of Munzer, the prince bishop is planning the final assault. And so the final assault was supposed to begin on May 22nd, but there was an oops attack. If you were a mercenary, guess where you got your money? Okay, well, you got paid by the guy that called you, but guess what? It was the spoils. So first come, first serve. You want the good stuff? You got to be some of the first ones in the city, right? 
These guys are, are greedy and lusty, and, so, and, and they like to drink. And so Prince Bishop is using the devil and the devil's mother to bombard the walls with cannon fire, and there's a drunk group of mercenaries, and they wake up at dusk. They think in their drunken stupor, it's dawn. <laughs> Fearing that they're going to miss out on getting the good stuff. We got to get to the yard sale early. <laughs> they actually start to attack the city. Other soldiers wake, uh, uh, see them and like, what are those guys doing? Well, I'm not going to let them get in first. And so you had this absolutely chaotic oops attack that was repelled by the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists are having a blast. They're shooting at them with arrows. They're pouring boiling pitch on them. They're throwing burning rings of fire around their neck. And they lose maybe 15. But guess what? Prince Bishop loses 300 men. And they took it as a sign that God was with them. So during this time, Jan Leiden had a revelation that every man should have more than one wife. Of course, he already had more than one wife. (laughs) It's funny how those revelations come in such a timely manner. Now, the motivation for this new vision was sort of suspect. There was a soldier that actually Nipperdaling had allowed to come and live in his house, and he had witnessed von Leiden actually um, going to a bedroom with a woman that was not one of his three wives. And so, you have to understand, even though they're like taking their clothes off and getting drunk and dancing in the street, they still held marriage in high esteem. Okay? If von Leiden was an adulterer, He'd be discredited. So he has a vision. It's God's will for everybody to have more than one wife. Now it is true that in the city of Munzer, you had three to one female to male. And so just statistically, I think that probably he thought was probably a good idea. But here was, here was the wretched part. From that point on, nobody was to lock their doors in the city of Munzer. In fact, you had to leave your door ajar. And so... Any man in the city of Munster could enter any house and call for the women to line up, including girls 10 to 12 years old, who were then taken as wives. And so although Jan had said that women could not be forced into marriage, ironically, those who refused were executed. Polygamy was now the rule of Munzer because Jan said it, and if Jan said it, it was the word of God. At this point, murder becomes a daily occurrence. Nipperdolin is executing people every day, cutting them in half, beheading them, or shooting them, and just like we've seen in communist countries uh, again and again, mass graves were dug. Anyone who was an opponent was shot. Anyone who was not faithful enough was shot, and the graves filled up quickly. Within a very short period of time, Jan von Leiden accumulates 16 wives, and Devara is now chief of his harem. 
as the assaults continued, the mercenaries were continually pushed back. You have to remember as we, as we consider the city, it's a well-fortified city. In fact, it's one of the best fortified cities in North Germany. And so in one of the, one of the few books um, on this issue, the Taylor King, talking about the mercenaries, Arthur Anthony says, these men were hardened professionals, veterans of campaigns in Spain, Italy, and France, and accustomed to violence and hardship. Their opponents were only shopkeepers, smiths, tailors, and housewives, but they were fighting both for their lives and for God. The hapless mercenaries could not have anticipated the fury which they would encounter on that summer morning. Some had their hands hacked off as they grabbed top rungs of the ladder. Some were battered through their helmets with heavy notched clubs. Some were cloven with broadswords. Some run through with spears. Those climbing behind the leaders looked up to see the strong arms of two men on either side of the ladder holding posts and tree limbs between them which they dropped together stripping the ladder of five or six men with one stroke. The women who had for months stirred their cauldrons of boiling pitch and quicklime in anticip quicklime actually when it hit the skin would just devour the skin right to the bone. In anticipation of this day, dashed the caustic liquid in the faces of the enemy soldiers, poured it down their armor, made lighted necklaces which they threw around the men as they scurried frantically around the base of the wall. The men on the ladders fell back into the moat. Some of those waiting below jumped in, hoping to escape the quicklime that dissolved their flesh or the pitch that seared it, only to find the weight of their armor dragging them to their deaths." All of this was a sign of divine favor to them. But things on the inside began to deteriorate even more. The great communist experiment, property ownership is evil. Everybody in the city was relegated to poverty. Except, of course, Jan and his court. And so through a prophecy, it was revealed by this lame goldsmith. This lame goldsmith shows up and um, he's uh, hunched over and he has a bad limp and he's got a bag with him. And he says, I want to talk to, um, I want to talk to Nipper Dolene and the, the, the rest of the apostles. And he says, uh, God told me I needed to come here and give you a word. And that is that um, <laughs> Jan van Leiden is the new David. And he reaches into the bag, pulls out a scepter, and pulls out a crown, which just happens to perfectly fit on Van Leiden's head. He's the new David. And in fact, he's not just a prophet anymore. He's the new David that's going to not only destroy the bishop's army, but he himself is going to be the ruler of the millennial kingdom. The sex and the violence within the city had reached a fever pitch while the bishop continued his assault. What he decided to do was he decided to build a massive siege work made of earth all around the entire city wall. Some would escape through the night out of the city, realizing that things were looking pretty bleak. They would slip over, give the bishop 
information. And so at this time, Bernard Rothman picks up his pen again and writes two tracts, Restitution and Revenge. Restitution was simply a a tract that was arguing that the Anabaptists were doing nothing more than restoring authentic apostolic Christianity, but it was his tract on revenge that justified turning their plowshares into swords and using violence to bring about the apocalypse. Of course, Luther hears of this, right? Luther condemns the Munzer Rebellion in the strongest possible terms. And in typical Luther fashion, he mocks von Leiden as a tailor king, a false messiah who was making a mockery of Jesus Christ. So it became increasingly clear that Munzer was going to fall if they didn't get help. And so Jan and his court feasted. 1,500 soldiers were well-fed. The people were not. So Leiden is having a banquet. And what he did for entertainment was brought in a bunch of rebels and executed them at the party. And then he prophesied and said if the city was not free by Easter, he would forfeit his own life. Easter came and went. (laughs) As these things are wont to happen. And then God told Jan that he made a mistake. (laughs) Because he tells Jan, you were mistaken because you were confused because you're burdened by everybody's sin. He also had another revelation And that is, it wasn't the city that was going to be free, it was going to be their souls. Arthur Anthony says, Jan's terror tactics were relatively selective, directed mostly against the few who had the courage or the folly to resist him openly. The hunger that could drive people to cannibalism was far more widespread and even more difficult for Jan to deal with than with the treason. Already, in addition to Henry Gray's wife and her friend, a woman who had been executed for taking more than her allotted portion of horse flesh from the public butcher shop, and a 10-year-old boy who had been hanged twice because the rope broke the first time for stealing apples from a fruit stall in a market. By mid-May, thousands of people were facing starvation. The king and his court continued to dine well. However, because all the produce from the private plots had been uh, appropriated for the palace and for the approximately 800 to 1,500 armed men assigned to the city's defense, all that were left after death and illness and in particular desertion, so eight to 1,500 people left to defend the city. For everyone else, even the coarse barley used for making bread was now almost gone. The cattle that had, that had cost Clay's Northorn, his life had been eaten. The remaining horses had been killed and butchered and eaten. A sign that promised escape through the enemy lines was no longer even conceivable. During the preceding summer, when 120 horses had been slaughtered, their heads and tails and innards had been buried. Now everything was eaten, including hooves and intestines. Every cat, every dog had long since vanished into the cooking pots. And the mice and the rats would have gone to the cats, 
that would have gone to the cats were caught and fried in the tallows from candles. River snakes, hedgehogs, sparrows, anything that moved was devoured. People ate green bark, tender shoots of the willow that grew by the river, and they ate grass, they ate chalk, they ate dried cow dung. One woman even ate her stillborn baby. Their skin became livid, their lips withdrawn, their eyes fixed and round. This is, this is Buchenwald. This is Dachau. Absolutely horrific. So with growing hostility and increased executions and starvation, Jan Leiden told the citizens of Munster that they're free to leave. Of course, what does the bishop want with a bunch of starving refugees? The answer is nothing. So as the people fled, the bishop's soldiers were killing approximately 50 men, not counting women and children, every day. The bishop's final assault began in earnest. He bombards the walls. As he's bombarding the walls, the women are actually repairing the breaches as quickly as possible. Now, the prince bishop is no longer concerned about the city. He kind of wanted to preserve it because it was his city. But now, with pressure from other princes to end this thing, he begins a plan. And by the way, the walls of Munster never actually fell. So on the inside, Jan Leiden marries another young, beautiful woman, who was opinionated and difficult. And on one day, Leiden decides to kill her in front of all of the other wives and then demands that they dance around the decapitated body and commands them to sing glory to God in the highest. So during a terrible thunder and rainstorm, about 400 of the bishop's soldiers make their way in the middle of the night into the city. They torture one of the centuries who gives up the password. That's how you got in. They found themselves inside the city, just 400, unnoticed. They're detected. There's some resistance, but not very much. Those that fought were quickly killed. And the soldiers who had endured 16 months of summer and winter and hardship and deprivation and deprived of any uh, kind of remuneration, let their frustration and vengeance out on the inhabitants in the city. The, the force of 400 went and opened the gates, and the soldiers went door to door, looting and murdering and committing deeds that are too terrible to describe. In all the aftermath, Bernard Rothman was never found, Bernard Nipperdalling was hidden in the attic of a woman who, <laughs> when asked by the Prince Bishop soldiers, where's Nipperdalling? She says, give me a piece of bread and I'll tell you, he's in the attic. Nipperdalling is arrested. Jan van Leiden is captured. When the bishop brings von Leiden in, he tells von Leiden, your rebellion has cost me so much money. And Jan, of course, ever the actor, says to the bishop, instead of killing us, why don't you put us in iron cages and travel around Europe and charge a penny for people to come and look at us, and this would more than recoup your losses. 
His suggestion, of course, was denied. Nipper Dalling, another leader, Kretchen and von Leiden were brought to execution in front of the church. They were tied to a pole with their necks in collars, iron collars, that had spikes facing inward so that they could not look around. They were tied back to back, so three of them on one pole. Jan van Leiden was the first to be tortured. Red hot tongs were used to strip his flesh from his body, starting under his arms. The torturers were given strict command by the prince bishop to make sure that the torture lasted at least an hour. And so as von Leiden would pass out from the pain, they would revive him and start it all over again. So for an hour, the other two, Nipper, Dalling, and Kretchen, listened to what would await them. Nipper, Dalling is so terrified, he actually tries to kill himself by allowing the weight of his body to fall and hopefully be killed by the spikes in the collar. Soldier catches him in time and actually ties him tighter to the post so that he could not move. All three, after their own hour-long torture, were then stabbed. And their bodies were placed in iron cages. Next um, slide, Roger. Which hangs 200 feet on St. Lambert's Church. That's St. Lambert's Church. You see the three cages? Next picture, Roger. Those are the three cages. Those three cages are there today. Their bodies were put in those cages to hang 200 feet high above the city. So what is the legacy of the Munzer Rebellion? As one writer says, they converted marriage into prostitution, a tailor into a king, a merchant into a hanging judge, and a preacher into a political propagandist. I hope that you can see there are many things that happen in Munzer that we are not strangers to. So what can we learn? Well, there's a lot to learn. One, I would say, we cannot overestimate the danger of someone claiming that they're a prophet who hears directly from God. Does that happen today? Yeah, I'll put a plug in. Watch the new movie, Cessationist. Okay? Okay. I don't know where you can get it, but maybe Netflix or something? I don't know. Barrett? Prime? Prime Video? Prime Amazon? Okay. Second, we cannot overemphasize the danger of emphasizing certain charismatic gifts of the Spirit over the written word. That's, that is one of the things that happens with the Zwickau prophets. It's one of the things that happens with Melchior. It's one of the things that happens with Matthias and then von Leyden. And that is that they actually elevate themselves above the written word. By the way, it was the same thing that Jim Jones did. 
In People's Temple in San Francisco, it was the same thing that David Koresh did in Waco. All of a sudden, they were the oracle. The written word of God was not the authority. They were the authority. Profoundly dangerous. Deeply dangerous. You combine, you combine the, the excess emphasis on certain charismatic gifts exalted above the written word, and then you wed that to a a charismatic personality, you actually have one of the most dangerous combinations you could ever have in the realm of religion or anywhere else. These charismatic leaders claim special gifts, special power, special authority, and their followers, you know, you have people that are followers of the law, You have people that are followers of tradition, and then you have people that are followers of charismatic leaders. Followers of charismatic leaders can be demonically devout. Rejecting the rule of scripture, being blindly committed to their leader instead of scripture. The leaders rule by fear and fanaticism, and their devout followers end up doing the unspeakable things. Just think about Nazi Germany less than 100 years ago. We cannot overestimate the danger of of emphasizing apocalyptic fever, date setting. By the way, let me just just give you a little bit of, of, of reliable information. Everybody that's ever set a date has been wrong. Apocalyptic fever blinds people to the centrality of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And finally, we can't ignore the dangers of socialism. Socialism actually claims equality, but in the end, it always ends up being a caste system of the haves and the have-nots. In the end, it's driven by greed. A greed that's probably even more diabolical than anything ever exhibited in capitalism. It is It is bad for any people. By the way, young people, you're in college, right? If, you're, if you don't go to a Christian college, if you go to, to, to a state college, okay, you're, being, you're being taught by Thomas Munzer. You're being taught by people who, who have all of these socialistic, communistic values as they live in America. This is a sad chapter in Reformation history, and it actually would bring reproach on the Reformation, the gospel, and the church for decades in Germany. Do you think the Roman Catholic Church made, exploited this? They most certainly did. All right, well, technically we're out of time, but we'll take time for a few questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, outbursts, letters to the editor. Jesse. The... The, the, the Anabaptists were all... Kiliests or pre-mill. They all argued for a literal 1,000 year reign 
on the earth somewhere. Okay? So. Yes. Are there bodies still in the cages? I don't know. I would imagine that bones after 500 years don't, they're probably just dust, I would imagine, by now. Okay. All right, any, any other questions? Yes, Marcus. Okay, how many people were killed? Now, that actually is a very, very good question. And the problem with answering that is that there's, there's no way to know how many people ultimately flooded into the city and how many people escaped, okay? But it is, it is safe to say that within the city walls, the Anabaptists themselves, the leaders, probably killed about 2,000, 3,000 people, okay? I don't know how many the, the bishop soldiers would have killed. Absolutely horrific. Yes. What's that? Okay, can I get an interpreter? Oh, what time was it the most people in the city? Um, probably in, the late, in late 1533, where you had uh, lots of poor people streaming into the city to try to get their share. The city probably uh, reached a peak of nine to 10,000 in late 1533 or so. Okay, good question. Phil. There's a little boy who's 13 years old named Herman Krusenbeck who lived in Munzer through this whole thing. And he survived. And he was actually a Catholic boy. And you have his first-hand account. And then you have the first-hand account of a number of other people of certain segments of, of the history. Okay. Yeah, Liz. Uh-huh. Yeah, less than two years. All that took place in less than two years. Which there's a lesson in that too, isn't there? Yeah. All right, all the kids are asking questions, making you adults look a little slow. Geneva. How did people... In the, <laughs> the question... How did they get in? Okay, well, Melchior Hoffman got put in the cage and then got hoisted up. He was alive. The other three guys just kind of got in however they saw fit to squish him in. Okay? (laughs) Core. Uh-huh. No, it was, it's called earthworks. So they brought in all kinds of people to, they dig a trench and then they build a huge wall. Okay. <laughs> William. 
Why were the canons called the devil and the devil's mother? Actually, the devil was bigger than the devil's mother, but they were both really scary canons, gigantic. Okay, they were just, they were just big. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> All right, any other kids have questions? All right. <laughs> All right, last two here. Uh, let's go with, you guys already and asked on uh, Deborah. Well, not, um, not from Munzer. Um, what ends up surviving is the Anabaptist movement from the first stream that we talked about. So the Mennonites, the Amish, those that were pacifistic, those that believe in communal living, okay? And of course, they're still with us today, although I don't think Menno Simons would recognize Mennonites today, but all right. Okay. One more, Jesse, then we're done. Can you put those up, Roger? Six common marks. So primitivism, so they're, they're restoring the Christianity, okay? Church is free society of baptized disciples. Church should be holy, separate. If you're not, you're shunned. Pacifism, no wars, no soldiers, no violence. Anti-tradition, anti-hierarchy. Now, obviously, the, 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 the Munzer Rebellion defies a number of those, right? So... Um, Church is a free society. It was hardly free. Get baptized or die. I don't, that seems like coercion to me. Um, church should be holy. Mm-mm. Uh, pacifism, certainly not. Um, anti-tradition, yes. Anti-hierarchy in principle, not in practice. Okay. All right. Well, Anybody shocked? <laughs> Primitivism is the first one. Yeah, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the overarching idea. Yeah. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed it. Um, hope you don't have nightmares. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know your word warns us against false prophets, false teachers, and against following them. And so we pray, Father, that you would, that you would really instill in our hearts, even, even the young hearts that are here, you would instill in us Isaiah 8.20 to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to these, it's because there's no light in them. And so we pray, Father, that we would truly hold to sola scriptura, that we would hold to your word as the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice. And Father, we pray that, that, uh, that those who are really, Lord, demonically deluded and fall into these, these terrible and violent and immoral cults, we pray that you'd be pleased to deliver many for the sake of their immortal souls. 
Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the Reformation. And um, we pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.